Welcome to the Feathered Desert, a podcast all about desert bird feeding in the southwestern region of the United States. Welcome to the Feathered Desert. This is Cheryl and Kirsten is with me and we're going to talk today about desert pollinators. And this is number three in our series of, I believe, four. And we're doing moths today. And oh, I know, I know. Moths aren't just those dull brown. First cousins are our beloved butterflies. They come in all shapes, sizes, and colors. And I know that they fly around light in the night and they get stuck in our hair. I know that just happened to me this morning coming into work. And they come in when we open the doors. But wait, please, please don't touch that dial. These are important animals to our, the ecosystem in which we live in. Um, and Kirsten is going to share with us 10 fascinating facts about moths. Yes. Um, for those of you who don't know, which might be everybody listening right now, I actually, when I lived in Maryland, used to work at a native butterfly house. And I was a volunteer there. And that's where I fell in love with moths. Yes, butterflies are awesome. But moths are equally cool. So we're going to give you some facts. Yes, that will help you also fall in love with our moths. So one of the things that people really don't understand is that moths actually outnumber butterflies nine to one. It's estimated that there's 11,000 moths known to exist in the U.S., the U.S. alone. Around the world, there's another 160,000 species of moths that have been identified. And that's identified and cataloged. So there is a staggering 200,000 or more species of moths that may exist. They're just waiting to be discovered out there. So that's exciting. It is exciting. And I know there's somebody out there that's like, there's something I wanted to do with my life. You can discover a moth. And there are only 17,500 different species of butterflies. So moths are certainly outweighing them. Uh, most Most moths are nocturnal, but many fly during the day. They're actually mistaken for butterflies as they drink from flowers because many of the day flying moths are actually really bright and pretty colors. And that's very interesting. Uh, One of the things that really interests me about moths is how many sizes they come in. They come in all different types of sizes. Some moths are so small, they're actually referred to as micro moths. Those are those little ones that like get up in your face and you're like, oh my gosh, what is that? And that's a tiny little micro moth. In Africa, the smallest known moth has a wingspan of Two, just two millimeters, two millimeters. That's tiny. Pull out your ruler and look at the millimeter. That is a tiny little moth and that's their wingspan. On the other end of the scale, there's a white witch moth in neotropical species that has a wingspan that reaches up to 28 centimeters or the size of a dinner plate. Yeah, you don't want that, you know, flying around your light at night. Yeah, you don't want that flying around your light. That's pretty big. And there's also the giant wood moth from Queensland, Australia, that can weigh up to 30 grams. That is about the same weight as a cactus wren. 
That is a big moth. Yes. A really big moth. Body-wise. Yes. yes. Leave it so, to Australia. Leave it to Australia. <laughs> they have some of the most fascinating animals. Um, uh, our fourth fact is that moths are actually important pollinators. Scientists now, with all the things that they're doing with moths, are actually discovering that they're more important to the pollination of flowering plants than butterflies. Uh, moths also don't have noses. Uh, which would be interesting to see a moth flying around with a nose. But uh, they have to smell things. That's what they've got to do. So how exactly do they smell? Uh, they have um, they use things around their environment that help them with their antenna. So they're actually able to sense things with their antenna like we sense things with our nose. So it's very interesting. Very strange. They're, just think about it, if we had our noses up in our head and it went in front of us all the time. Gosh, that'd be, <laughs> be a, scary. Be There's a some scary. things I don't want to smell. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, and also, speaking of parts on uh, that we share with moths, some moths don't have mouths. There's actually moths that don't have mouths. They actually come out of their cocoons, and they are ready to mate right away, and they die soon after. And this group is our silk moths. And here in Arizona, we have the luna moth, that you see a little bit more in our northern areas, and that is one of the silk moths. And they come out with no mouth parts, they mate immediately, they live for seven to 14 days, and then that's it for them. So they're one of the biggest, juiciest type caterpillars that you'll see because they eat and eat and eat before they go in the cocoon because they have to survive off of that fat for almost two weeks. Um, now, not all moths eat, but they are often eaten. Uh, moths and the caterpillars make up a lot of biomass in our ecosystem where they live. And things such as birds, bats, frogs, lizards, and small mammals all rely on moths and their caterpillars for their rich protein, and that helps them to survive. It also helps them raise their young. Uh, moths use all kind of tricks to avoid being eaten. And if you're going to be eaten, you want to try to live through that. So there's actually some moths that can produce an ultrasonic clicking that will confuse sonar-guided bats. This, this fascinates me. It really is. It's that um, arms race of survival. Who's going to live? The bat, the moth, and you've got to outdo each other to actually be able to survive. One of the things on that luna moth I was talking about is, if you guys have ever seen one, it's that real pretty moth that has these beautiful kind of curved um, sickle-shaped almost uh, bottom tail feather, or not feathers, I'm sorry, we're talking moths today, not birds, um, wings on the bottom. And those protrusions on the very bottom are actually to help confuse the bat when it hits the sonar and it hits that wing, it um, uh, confuses the sonar. It bounces back at the bat in a very odd way. And so the moth, the body of the moth is actually able to kind of get out of range. And then the bat will usually grab onto that tail feather. I'm sorry. Once again, <laughs> the wing at the bottom. It's almost like a tail feather. It's almost like a tail feather. It does look like that. Yeah. Uh, it'll grab that bottom tail on the luna moth and the luna moth will be able to fly away and just with a little bit of loss of its wing. So that's a great way for them to survive against the bats. Also, I didn't know about this. This was an interesting one that we found in our research that some moths migrate. Now, those of us who are listening to any kind of nature type podcast, you probably know about monarchs and their great migration. Uh, it's been studied well and it is supported here in the United States quite a bit. We talk about it a lot, but moths actually migrate too. The silver Y moth in England is a migrator. And I didn't know that at all. 
most moths will migrate for very practical reasons, just very similar to why our birds and monarchs actually migrate, which is better food supply to avoid avoid extreme weather conditions, whether it's too hot or too cold or too dry. And it's interesting because they generally do it at night. So that's why we don't see them. Butterflies will migrate during the day generally and moths at night. Um, also, moths are attracted to light bulbs, as we were talking about earlier. Yes. They do like the light bulbs. And that's the reason they're coming to the light is actually because the way they Na- navigate, isn't it having to do with the moon? The way they navigate for migration and then when they are ready to breed, they go up into towards the moon and to find mates. So that's why they come to our light bulbs because we have our light bulbs on all the time. This one I didn't know though, that um, bananas and beer apparently are attracted to them as well. Um, so for scientists, when they are looking to study moths, you have to find them. You can't just go out there and be like, oh, let's look for some moths. You need to bring them to you. So scientists use uh, black light and a sheet to create a mothing tent to collect data and observe the moths that come to the light. But some moths don't really come to that light for whatever reason in their life cycle. They're not attracted to different types of light. But they apparently can't resist a mixture of fermenting sweets. So scientists mix ripe bananas, molasses, and stale beer together and they paint it on a tree trunk and then they wait to see who comes for a taste. I bet that's because their um, smell is so much stronger because they're at night so they can't rely on their eyesight. Yes, most likely true. And then there are many of our different nighttime flowering plants that actually give off a smell kind of like they say it's like decomp, like a, a corpse, and that is what is attracting the moth to the plant. And so kind of that decaying smell must be what's attracting them to the banana and apparently the stale beer. That's fascinating. <laughs> Just really fascinating. All right. Cheryl is going to tell us a little bit more about our, now that you're hooked, a yes. little bit more about our moths. Yes. So like Kirsten and I were sharing earlier, moths represent a biological storehouse of interesting, dramatic, and unusual behaviors. Some with roles as pollinators and others as food for other animals, like we were discussing. Moth pollination is more prevalent in the Southwest than any other region of North America. The Southwest, that's us. Yes, largely due to warm evenings, favorable climate, and proximity to moth-rich canyons and the thorn scrub of the Northern Mexico. So planting moonlight flowers or a fragrance garden is a sure way to enjoy not only these wonderful blossoms that they have but also to attract their nocturnal pollinators especially one that we have um, that frequents this area the phoenix valley um, giant hawk moths and i'm going to talk about them and then i'm going to get even more specific so the hawk moth is in the uh, spignid family. Good job. Did I? Oh, good. See, yeah. Kirsten's making a face. Hope I say it right. Um, in the same order as butterflies. So that tells you that there's quite similarities between this um, moth and butterflies. And the lep- Leptrodoptera. Okay. Good job. All right. Okay. <laughs> the rest of the podcast is d- um, downhill, smooth sailing. So some of these larger moths belong to the hawk moth family. These amazing moths have long, narrow wings and thick bodies. They're fast flyers, highly aerobatic. Some of these species can fly uh, in place like hummingbirds, so they're often confused for hummingbirds in the late evening. 
um, they fly backwards or dot away. Mo hawk moths have the world's longest tongues of any other moth or butterfly. It is as long as its body. And I wish I could show you a picture, but uh, maybe we can post a picture in the show notes because it's really, they have pictures of showing the moth's tongue, excuse me, tongue, and it is as long as its body. So hawk moths are effective pollinators for a, for a group of specialized night blooming plants throughout the Southwest, the four o'clocks and the tough, tufted evening primrose. Now I'm gonna get a little more specific because the reason I picked this family grouping is because we have the white lined sphinx moth and it is in the hawk moth family. That's a very pretty moth. It's by a the very way. pretty moth. It's white, um, brown, has some pink in it. Um, and its caterpillar is quite interesting. And I have a purpose for this whole little spiel here. It is a familiar moth to our area. It has prominent white lines on the adult moth wings. The wingspan is two to three inches. Season um, for it uh, to breed or to for us to see it is actually long. It's February through November. Now the caterpillar is green with black lined orange spots down the entire body. It may appear that it has a horn protruding behind their at their end. Um, that is either orange or yellow tipped in black. However, they do not sting or cause harm to humans. That's where they get the hornworm yes, name. Yes, yes. So it's make, it wants to think, it wants to um, fool predators. So, but it's really not. It's probably a good meal for a predator if they can catch it. Now, I posted a video of these caterpillars on our Wild Birds Unlimited Mesa, Arizona Facebook page at a conservation area in the Phoenix Valley. And there's a little more information about the moth, about the caterpillar, because the ranger is talking about it as you can see them moving. So if you want to get a picture of the caterpillar and see them and 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 um, just um, drool in awe over them, yes. um, it is there um, for your viewing. Now the caterpillar of the hawk, of hawk moths and of the white line sphinx moth are familiar because we call them the green horned worm or the tobacco worms. And if you're a gardener who plants tomatoes, you're familiar with this, um, this worm. So moths pick up pollen on their legs and wings when they visit flowers and deposit the pollen accidentally on subsequent flower visits. So that's how they pollinate. So another moth I wanted to highlight is the yucca moth. The yucca moth actually picks up pollen rolls it into a pollen ball, places it in their flowers in order to assure food for their caterpillars. They are some of the only insects to purposefully, purposefully pollinate flowers. The yucca moth is a small white American moth. It is the sole pollinator of the yucca plant and the yucca plant is the sole food source for the yucca moth. So what I found so fascinating was that each yucca plant species is pollinated by only one type of yucca moth. And in the Southwest, one of the iconic partners, partnerships is the Joshua tree. So the Joshua tree is a yucca plant and it is pollinated by a specific yucca moth that only pollinates the Joshua tree. And the wow, Joshua so cool. tree only provides food for that moth. 
So anyway, moths are like you can go down this very dark rabbit hole. They're very, <laughs> very interesting um, uh, little animal. And Kirsten's going to compare the butterfly and the moth. All right. So that's one of the biggest questions that we got when I worked at the butterfly house was how can you tell the difference between a butterfly and moth? Yes. Well, one of the very first easy ones is for most of them, butterflies fly during the day and moths fly at night. As we said earlier, it's not a hard and fast rule, but most of the time that's what's going to happen. So if you see something flying around during the day and you're able to look at its antenna, that is another way to tell. So butterflies will have a little antenna that are kind of skinny with a little club at the end and they're called club, club antennas. So that's going to be a butterfly. If it is a moth, if it's nighttime, you can pretty much guarantee that it's a moth. But if you're able to see its antenna, that will also help you as well. If you look at their antenna, it's gonna look kind of fluffy or feathery. And that is a moth. They don't have the streamline with the club at the end. And to tell the difference between a male and a female moth, you take it one step farther, the moth that is the male will have really big fern-like, oh, yes, very fern-like looking antenna, much, much bigger. And that helps him to find the females. Wow. Because what do they do with their antenna? They smell. They smell. So yeah. he's able to find her with scent. So hers will be smaller. They'll still be kind of look like ferns, but much trimmer. Like you've trimmed up your ferns. Not that you've <laughs> let them get too big and fluffy. And that's uh, two great ways to decide whether it is a, a caterpillar. I'm sorry, not a caterpillar. <laughs> whether it's a butterfly or a moth. Um, another difference is that with the chrysalis versus cocoon, the chrysalis is for butterflies and that happens, it comes out of their body. So on their last instar stage, when they're getting out of that last caterpillar uniform that they're wearing during the caterpillar stage, they will shed off that skin and there will be the beginning of the chrysalis inside underneath that. So it's kind of like going to the beach with your swimwear on. You take your clothes off and your swimwear is already underneath there. That is a chrysalis and that is generally done by butterflies. They will attach their chrysalis to uh, an object and hang most of the time. So it'll be a, I mean, it can be a table, it can be a fence, it can be another thing in your garden, a rose bush, anything like that, that they can attach themselves to with a little bit of silk. The moths come out of cocoons and the cocoon is wrapped around the last instar stage of the caterpillar and it um, will be either underground, sometimes they squirm all the way underground and they make their cocoon down there, or they'll do it above ground on the ground usually, sometimes in a very large tree where they have big branches and they will wrap leaves and silk around themselves and that is the cocoon. So those are three differences between butterflies. And then the other thing we're gonna talk about too is the wings. The wings are a great way to tell as well. The butterflies will look more sleek and silky, but those of you who ever held a butterfly in your hand, you're like, oh my gosh, that powder, oh, that hurts them. Those are actually very fine scales. So, but theirs are very uh, smooth looking to our eye, and that would be a butterfly. If you're looking at something and you're kind of like, wow, it looks like it's got kind of like fuzzy wings, most likely a moth. And that's because their scales are just a little bit different. And um, other differences with their wings is that butterflies, when they sit still, they usually have their wings closed up 
not all butterflies, but a lot of them, they'll have them closed up and that's when you get that really good side view of the underside of their wing. And moths will usually lay out flats. So they look kind of like a paper airplane. Now there are some butterflies, the skippers, that actually sit with their wings open, but look at those antenna and that'll mm -hmm. tell you that the skipper is actually a butterfly. But most of the time wings have them out flat and that's what you see on your wall at night and it looks like a little triangle sometimes. So that's generally how moths hold their wings. So those are good four ways to decide if it's a butterfly or a moth. Very good information. Now <clears throat> I'm gonna do the plant spotlight to close this out. And I chose a plant, listen up gardeners, cause I chose this plant specifically to tie into my white lined sphinx moth. And I'm gonna hopefully not slaughter the name of this plant. <laughs> so it's a tomatillo. 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 Yes. And it's a Mexican husk tomato. And um, it's a night, a plant, um, of the nightshade family and it bears small round uh, green or green purple fruit because we, tomato is a fruit actually um, of the same name and they have been around for a long time they originated in uh, Mexico and were, can, were cultivated pre-Columbian uh, era so they ancient um, ancient uh, plant and it's in a lot of Mexican um, foods I can, do love a good tomatillo salsa. It can, it's in here. Salsa, <laughs> sauces, paste, pasta, paste, excuse me. Um, it's not really good raw. No, um, not very I was good raw. listening to some recipes and um, cooked, but really that's boiled. So um, the plant, if you plant this plant, according to Kirsten, because she's the one who gave me this idea, if you plant the plant among tomato plants, the green horn will, horn worm now remember that's the caterpillar of our white lined sphinx moth who's going to pollinate our um, dark night nocturnal fragrant flowers um we'll go to the tomatillo the tomatillo mm -hmm. tomatillo over the tomato plant yes so if you plant them together you can save your tomatoes for you and provide something for the moth yes now, of course, if you like the tomatillo and you're good at it, I we've never had success growing it and actually using it out of our own garden. But if you're good at it, then plant an extra tomatillo plant. <laughs> uh, but yes, it did. It worked for us in two different states that we lived in, in Georgia and in Maryland. And we just thought, let's let's do a tomatillo. We love both my husband and I love the tomatillo. I'm like, oh, we can do tomatillo salsa at home. It did not work out. It did not work out at all. But it the plant really grew. horrible. The plant grew nice and big and enormous, and it actually did grow some tomatillos. And we started noticing that the hornworm was on the tomatillo plant instead of our tomato plant, right. which made my husband super excited. Yes. And so when we moved from Georgia to Maryland, we did it again, thinking once again, oh, we can do the tomatillo. We know what we're doing in the kitchen with it. No. Uh, but the plant worked just as well. And it got the hornworms on it and it saved our tomato plants and the uh, hornworm ate the tomatillo plant and I was like cool so it's, a, for me. it's a win-win situation yes win -win. so go ahead I'm gonna try it uh, we're planting tomatoes in September so I'm gonna find one of these plants and see if it won't you know it, it'll work it'll create work. the balance that we're looking for in our backyard yes and the tomatillo is not hard to find you can usually find it anywhere that someone is selling tomato plants they usually often have the tomatillo as well well, cool. Well, that's it for today. So thank you very much for listening and we'll see you next time.